when you are in pursuit of finding the support that you need, whether it's a therapist or a psychiatrist or a coach or an energy healer, whatever works for you, I want you to really pay attention to the language that they use around you. Is it empowering or is it disempowering? Hello, welcome to the Active Ingredient Podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Wheel, and this is your destination for all things growth. Hello, welcome back to the Active Ingredient Podcast. Hope you're having a fabulous summer so far. I am so excited to be sharing this week's episode with someone who I deeply, deeply admire for how honest and vulnerable she is about her mental health journey and someone who I also respect so much and how she has built an incredible agency that is very niche and a topic that I'm very passionate about. And yeah, so this episode is with Scout Sobel, who is a fellow podcaster. She hosts a podcast with her sister called OKSIS. She is the founder of Scout's Agency, which is an incredible agency that places female voices on podcasts. And she coined this term podcast tours. So if anyone is out there launching a book or is in a season of really wanting to get themselves and their story out there on podcasts, that's literally the niche of her agency. And we get into all things podcasting and all of those things at the second half of the show. But really the main reason why I wanted to have her on, and I think that we definitely delivered that on this episode was just how she has coexisted with a lot of the mental struggles that she's faced. And not only has she like coexisted with them, but also used them to her advantage and been able to kind of reframe them as a superpower. And I'm so incredibly passionate about that topic. I mean, I just, I I relate to her on so many levels with that. And we do go deep on this episode. So I just wanted to kind of give that flag. And I'm just so grateful to people like Scout that are so open and honest about where they have come from on their journey and also where they currently stand. And knowing that it's a constant progress and process, but that ultimately there is a beautiful way of living and that things that could have been your darkest times or darkest kind of symptoms are also things that could be transformed into the thing that makes you just incredibly unique and powerful. So with that, Scout, welcome to the show. Welcome to Active Ingredient. I'm so excited to do this. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like it's been a long time in the works. A thousand percent. And I feel like I've been watching you in the space for a long time. I really respect the hell out of how vocal you are about your mental health journey and just watching you blossom and bloom, even with talking about being a mom and creating this agency and letting that continue to grow at the same time while not shying away from how that's affecting your mental health or just how you're like coexisting with all of it. I just really respect that. So thank you as someone else who's a founder, who's not yet a mom. It's just really cool to see other people do it before me. Thank you. That means so much to me. I'm trying to be as honest and transparent as possible. I feel like I've not yet totally grasped how to speak about motherhood in a way that feels true and real because so much of it is really indescribable. So I'm still getting my footing there, but I try as much as I can to 
to really talk about the realities of how beautiful and challenging it is. I can't wait to get more into it, but I just know that like I really respect it and I'm really grateful for it. And I know a lot of other people who are women who want to be moms that work for themselves really need that. So I have one question that is always the way that I kick off Active Ingredient, which is what you were like as a kid that you remember. And I know you've done a lot of inner work, but just like those early memories of things that you would gravitate towards or things that your family would like describe about you in your like young age. My mom describes me as an angel child. She <laughs> said it was very quiet. I have very quiet. But my early memories... I was someone who enjoyed a lot of alone time. So I wanted to be alone in my room. I was someone who read a lot of books as soon as I learned how to read. I was someone who kept a diary since I learned how to write in kindergarten. I did not want to socialize. I also remember, it's not something I always talk about um, as part of my story, but I remember feeling anxiety for the first time in kindergarten and having it totally knock out my whole weekend. And I didn't know it was happening to me. I think I was also incredibly quiet about what I was feeling internally as a young kid. I look back and see a lot of mental health problems starting at the age of four to five. Someone who was very introspective as a little kid and definitely did not want to be around a lot of people. I know that this is like a lot to ask because four or five is very young, but do you remember like what would come up for you in those times? Was it like preference or was it that you were like afraid of being in certain situations? I was afraid of being in certain situations. I energetically and emotionally didn't deal well with crowds. I remember my mom would say, well, if you don't go to camp, you stay in your room all day. You can't come out. And I'm like, fucking deal. Sounds great to me. So yeah, I remember having a lot of social anxiety for sure. Interesting. Do you feel that that's how you present still now? Like, is there still preference for you to be introverted and stay to yourself out of fear or out of now preference? Now it's out of preference. I think people are shocked when they find out how much I don't like talking to people, how much I really don't want to be around people. But my job is weirdly to talk to people all day long and have a podcast, but I'm so much better one-on-one like this than I am in a group, which is probably why I do what I do. But my husband, when we first started dating, he was like, I love that I could take you to a party and like you fit in and everyone loved you and you could talk to everyone and you were fine. And I was like, I hated it the whole way. Like I don't, I don't like it. I'm very good at it, but I am a big introvert. And if I had my choice, which is a weird thing to say, because I obviously choose everything in my life and I have the power to choose mm-hmm. again, should I so desire But I think that in a happier alternate reality, I have 40% less social engagement. Do you know what your human design is? I am a generator. I'm an emotional generator. So I work a lot and very good at working. I have a lot of energy inside. I think I'm such a people pleaser and I'm an empath and I feel people's feelings a lot. I love working. I love like a really hard, long day of work. I get anxious like on a Saturday or Sunday morning because I just like want to do something, but it's not going to a concert or go to brunch. It's more like, let me write this essay or let me do this podcast or let me send this proposal or let me send an invoice kind of thing. I relate so much. And I also work in PR and have a podcast and feel, and I've felt for a really long time that in a lot of those situations, what it feels like is a performance. But in recent years, I feel like through a lot of work, I've started to bring more people into my life that actually 
I always identified as introvert. Always, always, always. Like same as you. Like I would prefer to be by myself and I would always feel depleted in social situations, in PR events. All the time I would come home exhausted and like need a week recovery. And recently I've started to feel what it feels like to be around people that I feel energized by. And I'm now kind of like switching what it feels like to be from introvert to just like not labeling it as anything. Like sometimes around certain people, I feel introverted because it's the situation versus Mm. the person or the group. Because there are certain groups that I feel a thousand percent myself in, you know? So Mm. do you find that like the older that you are, just like the more that you've lived, you found more of those people? I have a very specific and unique case that I I grew up in a really small community and I went to school at a really small school. There were 28 kids in my graduating class. Wow. And half of us were together since kindergarten. So when you look at my inner, inner circle, uh, 75% of it are those people. So wow. I actually, I have a lot of friends, but when you think about like the, the people that I talk to every single day, it's people I've known forever and we come from the same community and that's probably safe for me because we know each other like family. It's probably difficult for me to get comfortable with new friends or to feel like my nervous system can relax, even though I am good at it and do it all the time. It's like a very strange paradox. So the people that I'm with, my inner circle of people are my people and I feel really comfortable with them. And no, I still got to kick them out. Like it's enough. You know what I mean? Like I'm like... I need a long time. So I, I think I just am an introvert, no matter if I'm with like the people that I absolutely love. I just need a lot of alone time, which is hard when you're a mom and, and a business owner. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I would love for you to kind of give us the walkthrough of your mental health journey. I mean, it sounds like it started very, very young, but what I've heard mm-hmm. is that you really started to understand that the magnitude of it, I guess, at 14, right? Yes. So I had my first depressive episode at 14. I'll give you like the skeleton outline. So I had my first depressive episode at 14. I very quickly went down, you know, and stopped taking care of myself, stopped showering, I was self-farming, I was restricting food. I was, everyone knew, like everyone around me was like, what, something is wrong. And and it was difficult for me to hide it. And so once my school found out about the self-harm, my parents put me into therapy and I, as a rebellious angsty teenager, fought every therapist until I finally gave up. My, I think it was like the fourth therapist my parents took me to. Then I finally gave into the process and I was in therapy throughout high school. And I remember going up and going down and feeling extreme emotional paralysis and not being able to go to school or do my homework, not because I couldn't comprehend the material or get it done from like a cognitive standpoint, but because I just couldn't emotionally get myself to do anything. It was like very paralyzed at times. And I was the girl who spent like 400 million mental health days before mental health days were even a concept that people talk about. And, you know, I, as I said earlier, it's a very tight knit community. So everyone knew I was in therapy. It wasn't super talked about in the sense, not like a bad way, but in the sense that no one really treated me differently about it. My closest friends would be like, oh, it's just Scott. She's depressed. I'm going to go write a poem in the corner. It really was like out of love and acceptance for who I was, but nobody was in therapy. Like nobody I knew was in therapy and nobody was talking about mental health. And so I went up and down in high school. I was always the friend who assumed we were going to get caught. I was extra cautious, very anxious, et cetera. But then it all came to kind of this big crescendo moment when I went to college. My parents had just divorced. I left for college. And that's when I should say that when I was in high school, there was like, is this mental health or is this formal? Like, is it mental health or is she just being a teenager? Like no one could really know. And I think that was helpful. I did take a 500 question test that 
put me on the border of clinical and chronic depression, but I was placed on medication, which I now in hindsight believe was a good thing for me because we were trying to figure out what was going on with me. And so once I left for college, when I say like my mind stopped, I started exiting reality and I started getting extremely paranoid and developing psychosis that men were following me home, they murdered my bed, they murdered my car, waiting to kill and burn me. And that's when I got pretty scared because I was like, wait a minute, my mind is taking on a narrative of its own that I, I'm not willing it to, and I don't want it to, and I don't know how to make it stop. And that's when the conversation started going towards, okay, we think there's something else happening here. This is not a teenage hormonal thing. And it took two years from then, but at the end of 20, I was formally diagnosed with bipolar disorder, uh, type two, she called it manic depressive. What's the difference between type one and type two? Type one leads more mania, type two leads more depressive. Okay. So I struggled more with depression and my mania is more hypomania. And so I dropped out of college because you have to know this was 12 years ago when she told me I was manic depressive. I was like, my life's over. I didn't know where to turn to. My dad didn't know what it was. Like no one knew. Did having some sort of diagnosis give you kind of like any release that there was something that had a name to describe what it was that you were going through? Or was it like, oh shit, I have like an actual mental diagnosis? I think relief was a part of it, but it wasn't like, it wasn't a diagnosis that I could understand or people could understand. So part of it was, see, I told you guys, I'm not just being dramatic right? That was validating of my experience. Mm -hmm. But I remember sitting at the therapist's office, I was at college. She said, you're manic depressive. I blacked out. I don't know what happened at that appointment. I walked home. I went into my apartment with my two friends in college and I opened my phone and I typed in what is manic depressive disorder. And it said bipolar disorder. And I lost it. I just totally, totally lost it. I mean, 12 years ago, that was, that was like a loony bin. Mm -hmm. You're crazy. You're done for type of diagnosis. And I didn't understand it. And I was on the first flight home the next day and I dropped out of college and I spent that summer going through an outpatient program. I was locked up on a 5150 for a 24 hour period. I always say that my healing journey really started when I started dating my husband at the age of, I was just about to turn 21. When he looked at me and said, you know, I don't care if you're depressed. If you're depressed and hopeful, I can be in this relationship. If you're depressed and hopeless, I can't be here. And that started me down a healing journey that I took for the next, you know, technically 12 years. But I I only started feeling safe in my emotions and really confident in my ability to manage my disorder when I turned 28, probably. There was a lot of medication that I tried throughout my 20s that left me worse than when I was off the medication. But today, you know, they told me I wasn't going to be able to have carry my own child because they didn't want me off medication once we found one at work because I had too severe of a of an illness. And today, you know, carrying my baby girl off meds and feeling more confident and strong than, than I ever had because of the the radical commitment I took to to my own healing and figuring it out on a day-to-day basis. First of all, thank you for sharing to the degree that you're sharing. I think that the more that we can share this and people can recognize themselves in the stories, it's just so powerful. So thank you for real. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart, my stuff started in college too. I'm curious now your mom and like in hindsight, seeing the whole process and especially at a time where social media was not available to us, we can see other people that we 
liked and saw succeed live and coexist with something that is actually more common than we think. Knowing it in hindsight and seeing the process and the journey that you went through, is there something that you were like, eh, I think that that was just like an outdated approach or an approach that I wouldn't recommend anymore or something that you would recommend people just like not have to deal with anymore and like do something instead? Yes. And I'm just going to disclaim it once and then I won't disclaim it again. Um, There is complete validity in the therapy and psychiatric worlds. And this is not a reflection on every therapist and every psychiatrist or Western medication or anything like that. There is no shame in taking medication if one needs it. Adding therapy is an incredible tool for all involved. The thing that I look back and wish that I had known is that I actually had a lot more agency and control over my situation than I thought I did. The narrative that my therapists and my psychiatrists were giving me was that I was a clinical patient, that I had a severe condition, that if anything got too too crazy, I, I need to go to the hospital. They spoke to me like I was a crazy person. They spoke to me as if they didn't trust me to manage my life. Therefore, I didn't trust myself to manage my, my life. And therefore, I thought that my disorder was out of my control and that this was just happening to me. I believe that the messages that I specifically received were incredibly disempowering. And that kept me in a state of getting better. Because if my doctors and my therapists couldn't have faith and trust me, how could I trust myself? And so that really changed when I found a coach who, when I I asked her, I said, listen, you know, I have a lot of suicidal ideation. I get catatonic. I go into crazy episodes. Can you handle that? And it's okay if you can't, because I know, you know, I know it's a lot. And she said to me, you're just a human having a human experience. That's it. And nobody had ever spoken to me like that. And so when you are in pursuit of finding the support that you need, whether it's a therapist or a psychiatrist or a coach or an energy healer, whatever works for you, I want you to really pay attention to the language that they use around you. Is it empowering or is it disempowering? Are you a clinical client or like a patient or are you a human being that they want to help heal? There's a big difference. And There's different realms of the mental health world. I entered a very clinical realm of the mental health world, and I feel as if it incredibly disempowered me on multiple levels. I feel as if I was given medication that made me worse, and I had no education and no guidance from my doctors over what the withdrawal symptoms were or what symptoms weren't normal on those things. And so I eventually found a med that did work for me that I now know if I ever need to go on, I have it available, and I'm so grateful for that resource. And you are your biggest advocate in those rooms, regardless of how depressed and in quote-unquote crisis you are over your life or how disempowered. The people that are supporting you should be empowering you and not keeping you in your mental illness or in a world where you don't feel confident enough to exit out of it. So that's something that I feel very passionate about because I now have experienced support that is so beautiful and it's allowed me to transform my life. And then The last thing I'll say, because it's something that I want to start screaming from the top of mountains, is that we talk a lot about everyone going to therapy. Everyone go to therapy. Everyone go to therapy. And thank God, right? Like no one talked about that a while ago. Yes, you should go to therapy. But I really encourage people to not sleep on group therapy. There are support groups that are for free, 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 free. Go to NAMI, N-A-M-I. Find one in your in your local hometown. Support groups change my life. Like individual therapy, sometimes you can kind of like 
be chilling on your own bullshit for a while because the therapist Wait, that's no so funny else. you say that because I started going so I, I've been in therapy for years and I started doing couples therapy with my boyfriend who I've been with forever um like a year ago and I was like this is eight million times more like it's like so oh, much more yeah. effective I'm like yeah. <laughs> my to, to my therapist she's getting just my side of the story and yeah. in that it's like no 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 like it's my truth his truth the truth like all of it in one place how do you feel about people feeling comfortable in those settings? So I, I agree. And I think community is just like, we have not scratched the surface of it. And like, there are a lot of brands coming out right now that are kind of like commoditizing it. There's like the people hoods of the world that I really hope that they get it right. Like I really do because I agree with you, but I've been hearing from the space that people are not trusting of saying their truths in those circles still. So what what's yeah. your thought on that? Yeah. I always struggle with that one because I was like, let me talk. I'm here. I want to share. Like I hated going to group and not being able to share. So I was like, I'm here. I want the group support. That's interesting. Coming from, you know? That's really interesting though, that you're an introvert and wanted to do that. That's Why do you think? First of all, the group was total strangers. So mm. total strangers. I feel like especially with our traumas and our secrets and our feelings, it actually is a lot easier to speak to total strangers. 1,000%. The strangers that I was going to, I wasn't going to like a trendy brands support group on a Thursday night at a trendy coffee shop, right? Like I'm going to the place where there's like a 65-year-old man who lives inland. There's a 20-year-old girl. There's a 50-year-old mom. Like these are people that I would never meet in any sort of circle. And that kind of large random grouping of all of us is so healing because we can find the human in everybody. And sometimes when you're in the thick of things, going to a support group and hearing somebody else's story and then either offering feedback or your support or just witnessing them in their story, it can A, bring you out of yours and B, remind you of the common thread. And so while I'm so grateful that mental health is talked about and is trendy and all of the things, because that's a step in the right direction, 150%, I also believe in like going to the community center's support group and working that. I've done like Depressions Anonymous. I got a sponsor. I tried that route too. I really believe that there is a large resource world available to us that can create a community for those who are afraid to speak up, maybe going somewhere where you are just like, so not going to run into somebody, you know, totally outside of your comfort zone in your community that might help with that. And like anonymous. Yeah. So something that you said that I I feel like is something I do not want to get lost in this whole thing is the trust of the self. I think that if you struggle with mental health uh, on any level, if you have a brain, you have mental health, you come in and out of it on some degree, everything's on a spectrum. But the trust part, especially as women, is something that I really feel like we need to talk about more. And I'm so impressed by you being in rooms with people that have these degrees and that like are telling you that this is the problem that you have and all these still being able to advocate for yourself in those rooms how have you gone about your trust journey? Like, how do you proactively choose it? And what advice would you give to someone who's like, I just can't imagine myself trusting myself like that? Yeah. So, you know, it's so great to talk about my journey. And then I realized that, you know, this took like a decade to figure out. I mean, it really took a long time feeling incredibly disempowered and not trusting myself. That was the whole thing. I was afraid of my mental illness. I was afraid of what it could do to me and what it could do to my life of how I could be going in the right direction. And all of a sudden I'm like taking five steps backwards. So 
the first part I think is really getting in touch with yourself, whatever way that makes sense to you. For me, it's at this point, getting back in touch with myself is meditating, is journaling, is taking time for me, being alone, going to a sound bath, doing something spiritual, praying, et cetera. So if you're having trouble trusting yourself, there is a part of you that exists that is not touched by mental illness. It's not touched by mental health. It's not touched by physical health. It's not touched by your societal role, you know, call it your soul, if you will. There's an essence of you that when you meet it, you feel so good and you feel whole and you feel grounded and you feel like you're home. And there's nothing tangible to describe it. It's just an inner connection. And so I would implore you to take an audit and inventory of your life. And where do you feel the most in flow and just grounded and confident? It could be when you're swimming. It could be I don't know, when you're dancing, it could be when you're meditating, it could be when you're going for a walk. And if you don't know what it is, what just feels good in your body and just start doing that more and start internally checking in. Sean Mandurik has this incredible practice that I love. I don't know what he calls it, but you you think of something that's a hell yes and you scan your body and see how it feels. And then you think of something that's a hell no and then you scan your body and see how it feels. And that's how you start to get comfortable with knowing yourself internally. And that way you can create intuitive decisions and start to build that trust muscle as long as you're continuously connecting with the part of yourself that's you, not what your dad says or your mom says or your therapist says or your psychiatrist says, but something really internally. And it's a practice that takes so long, but if you can implement five to 10 to 20 minutes a day where you're connecting just internally in an empowering way, monitoring your thoughts, it's going to continuously create momentum and it's going to get stronger. Is there something or like a moment in your recent journey where you can say like, damn, I really, I really have grown a lot that like, this is something that, you know, five years ago or six, seven years ago, I would just never have been able to either respond in this way or be like this. Like, what is something that people can be like, oh, wow, that's like a real big shift. Literally everything. Five years ago, I didn't really have a career. I was a college dropout. I wasn't independent. I wasn't in my passion. I quit everything I'd ever started. And I was terrified every day of my life. I was so anxious and depressed every day of my life. And now, I mean, shit, like I have a business, four years. We're a multiple high six-figure business seven employees. We have a beautiful office in Hillcrest. I bought my dream home with my husband. I launched a best-selling book, which went to number 11 on the Amazon charts. I have a top charting podcast with my sister. I am friends with the most incredible female entrepreneurs, content creators, influencers, authors, and thought leaders of our time. Like women I never thought I'd even be able to get into a room with. I have my own community on Instagram and through my podcast. And I have a baby girl who's six months old. I carried. That I carried. I bought my dream car. That's fun. You can throw that in there. (laughs) You know, I, but most importantly, like above all of that, I legitimately can confidently say that I'm literally every single day living in complete alignment and fulfillment and in my purpose. I handle every emotion that comes my way. I am very clear that when I have a desire, it is mine to bring into this physical reality. I feel like I am a complete co-creator of my life, that I am in the driver's seat, that I have control over what my days look like. 
I feel like I understand my inner landscape better than I've ever understood anything in my life. I feel like I welcome emotions. I'm not afraid of my emotions. I use my emotions. And I really feel like I have a personal power that can do quite literally anything that I put my mind to. Because if five years ago, I was depressed, disempowered, on medication, thinking of a surrogate, my husband's afraid out of kind of where my life is going to go to being the CEO and entrepreneur of a very successful business and having all these things. And now we have a baby and, you know, it's crazy how you can transform your life. So for anyone who's listening, who's in this mindset of like, oh, but mine's worse off or mine's different, or I'm never going to get out of it, or she doesn't understand, da 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 I did it too for years. I'd be like, they don't get it. Like they have good mental health. They don't understand. Like it's out of my control, blah, 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 blah. And then I realized I'm not fucking special. There's nothing different about me. Literally. It's the ego trying to keep you separate from your healing. I was literally a human experiencing depression and anxiety, like other humans who experience depression, anxiety, catatonia, psychosis. And if other people can get out of it, like I got out of it, you can get out of it. And that might be triggering to your ego because it's probably trying to hold on to any sort of depression it can keep on to because it gets addicted to it. But just know that's a lie. It's a total blatant lie. And that you have so much more power if you're willing to just put it aside for two seconds and just think about a more empowering way and be radically committed. Is this easy? No. Every day is hard. Like, I'll just be honest. It's it's difficult. It's very difficult to play this game, to feel fulfilled and whole and in your personal power and love your job and love work. It takes mm-hmm. constant maintenance every day to not go towards your negative biases and your limiting beliefs and your depressive thoughts. I am so happy for you. And I'm so proud. I mean, I barely know you, but I'm just so proud of you as a human to be on the other side and to be a walking remembrance to people that they too can live like this. And it's possible no matter the circumstance. So it's just so empowering. And I'm so grateful for you sharing. So I want to talk about all things podcasts because you have this incredible agency and you amplify so many amazing female voices. And I'm really impressed with what you've done and niched on. Before we get into the business of it, I do want to just understand your relationship to podcasting in general. Like, Do you remember the first podcast that really kind of like sparked something in you. I think also podcasts are so amazing on healing journeys. Definitely the ones that helped me along the way. Yeah. So I started podcasting before there were really so many podcasts out there. So I've been podcasting now almost five years with my sister, but I actually had a podcast before OK Size for six years ago I started. So I was more a host than I was ever a listener. What was your Um, podcast? It was just me interviewing women in San Diego and I wasn't taking it seriously. And I didn't have an episode one week and my sister and I were on vacation and I was like, come on the pod. And we had like drinking a little bit of rosé and it was so fun. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, we have this energy between us. So then I shut that down and started OKSIS and really took it seriously. And that's how OKSIS came. So yeah, I started as a host. And so I actually fell in love with the medium as a host because I was getting able to talk to women that I never thought I'd have the opportunity to. Exactly. Like I'm in a hotel room with the person who just won the bachelor interviewing her, right? I'm like, how did this happen? So I fell in love with it because it was giving me access to women I really deeply admired. And then what came later was this community and this network and a business eventually. And then I started probably about like three months into podcasting, six months into podcasting, I became like a diehard devoted listener. And now I'm like, you know, I listen to at least one podcast a day. What are some podcasts right now that you have on rotation? 
on rotation. So in the morning, if I like have a big day and I want to like get at it, I'll listen to End Mind Let. I'll listen to more entrepreneurial one. So I rotate between Almost 30, the End Mind Let show, Life with Mariana, Everything is the Best, Skinny Confidential, CEO School, Mel Robbins, Expanded, Melissa Woods, Powerhouse Women. Expanded is so good. You know, so Jasmine Starr's show, Feel Good, Dear Gabby, it, a bunch of things. And then I'll also go through the like, you might also like and see if there's any guests that I like talking about stuff. Mm-hmm. I think I wish that I had someone who had bipolar talking on a podcast that I could go listen to 12 years ago. So now totally. like, I'm going through something at business. I'm like, how do we figure out a marketing funnel? Like, I'm just going to look for marketing funnel episodes and do a deep dive on those, like Jenna Kutcher's podcast or Amy Porterfield's podcast. So, if I'm in a spiritual mood, a business mood, a personal development mood, a wellness mood, I like tap into those. I love it. So talk to me about the agency and talk to me about scaling an agency of this level, especially because I love that post that you did recently about not having a Rolodex when you started. Just talk to me about the agency networking within the podcast space and also for like potential clients that want to work with you. Like what does podcasting do for people and how do you communicate ROI? So I started Scott's agency because very early on in the days of OKSIS, as I said, I fell in love with it because I was having these conversations with women that were lighting me up. But then I would post the episodes and I would watch our community, follow our guests online, buy their products and for their newsletter, listen to their podcast. And that's when I realized that being a guest on a podcast was a form of art. And it was a form that had immense depth because you were listening to someone talk for up to an hour. You were creating mm-hmm. this human emotional connection. You were resonating with them on a human level. And then you went to support their business because of that common situation or because of the common experience or whatever it was. They had a solution to your problem and you really, really spent intimate, vulnerable time together. And so I started it because I just had this idea that women and thought leaders and authors and entrepreneurs would go on these podcast tours as a standalone service. And so I created it with that standalone service. You could come to us. And we would put you as a guest on podcast. Now, when I started it, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I had a media kit made up. I had a thousand women I wanted to represent. I emailed all of them. Gmail blocked my email because I thought I was spamming. So I opened up a second (laughs) email address that I had two email addresses for a year. It was a total shit show. And I just really grinded. Like I did the old fashioned hustle. Like I, my output was at high because I figured the uh, statistically the higher output, the more input I'm going to get. How did you know the agency model without having worked at agencies? You know, I'm going to say something that might be rude, but I'll just be quite blunt. This shit's not rocket science. Like, okay, an agency, you have a service and there's a client and then they pay you. And that's it. Like that's, that's the fun. But like, how did you know how much to charge? How did you know what expectations would be for clients? Like all of them. I guess, I guess I stumbled and failed and fucked up. And I just tried like every foot in front of the other. I just wanted people. First, I just wanted people on my roster. I wanted to get people on my roster and I wanted to prove myself. So my price points were incredibly low, like 500 to 700 bucks a month, month to month, no commitment, nothing. That was the foot in the door. I was willing to do what it took. So I was managing 10 clients on my own very quickly, quit my day job because I was making more than I was making at my day job. And from there, you know, half my clients left one month because we were on month to month. And I was like, oh shit, I need three month contracts because I can't predict revenue, right? Okay, boom, there I do three month contracts. Then I was thinking, okay, I think I should incrementally increase my my prices over time. 
I was up someone who could go from 500 to 3,000 overnight. It didn't feel good in my body. So I did what felt good and good in my body. Okay, I need to do more sales. Okay, I just hired an employee and I signed an office lease and I actually don't have revenue for next month. Fuck. Okay, how do I how do I do that? Right. Like I really was willing to be really gritty and figure it out. I mean, even down to like cancellation fees and contracts. And, you know, in the contract you have to write, can I post about you publicly and let people know that I, you know, whatever. It's it was literally just trial and error and everything. I mean, this is so embarrassing. I'll say it out loud. When I used to bring clients on, I would ask them on the onboarding call to read their credit card out loud so I could put it into Stripe. What the fuck? My director's like, hey, can you just like put that in the contract so they can sell? And I'm like, that is a smart idea. Like literally like the, but the thing was- Whatever, you figured it out. Yeah, I hustled for the results and I got the results and that's the most important part. And so- now, if someone wants to be an agency owner, come to me and do my consulting hours, and I'll give you the fucking playbook real fast. But no, I did it through like wording on the job for sure. Yeah. So what do people expect going into it? And also the podcast space is changing all the time. How are you navigating that and expectations with clients? Is there like a specific time that you would recommend them that they'd really get the best bang for their buck? So... First of all, I'll go back to the prediction that I had, not knowing what would actually happen because this is a new strategy. No one knows. And it was really, really encouraging to see that when I would put my clients as guests on the podcast, they were starting to see the ROI and the return. So over four years, I've been able to see the impact that podcast stores have on our clients. You know, we've booked over 3,000 episodes. We've run close to 300 podcast tours, I think. And we've seen results from thousands of Instagram followers to books going to number one bestseller lists to... Uh, our clients signing high retainer clients to our clients podcasts, downloads doubling to them networking with celebrity entrepreneurs, to them getting their books endorsed by celebrity entrepreneurs to hosting events with the podcast host and then doubling their business that way. I mean, it's been insane. We've created thought leaders out of this strategy, which has been amazing. And the more I dove into the strategy and the more uh, my team and I became experts in this strategy, the more we were able to one, to see trends, two, set expectations, and three, the advantages of our agency and the fact that we've been just drilling into this service for four years is that we really understand the strategy in the space. We understand which podcast to pitch to to create success. We understand we can take a client who's here and know what type of podcast where she needs to be in for her to receive success or to get the yeses and to get on the podcast. So we have half of our clients come to us for launches and half of us come to for brand awareness. I believe the winning strategy is to always be on a perpetual podcast tour. Brand awareness podcast tours work just as beautifully as launches. You're going to see a more concentrated ROI and effect from a launch because we're going to concentrate all of the publications to come out. So it'll be a bigger like momentarily bang. But the brand awareness ones, my clients who have been with me and have done three, four tours at this point who keep coming back are the ones that we've seen their business revenue go up, their Instagram followers go up. They're signing clients, their books are going to number one because it really is a continuous momentum. I really, really believe that this strategy is so successful for people because of how human it is. Yeah, it's the medium that I definitely love the most. It's the most intimate. For the people that you've had and for the 3,000 ones that you've placed, are there any things that you keep an eye out for to like see in the people that you're placing that you just see as a common denominator that these are the types of people that actually like, Get it. 
Yes. Excellent question. And it's so important because it sounds counterintuitive, but like I could put you on a podcast all day long and I could put you on the top podcast, but who you are and how you perform and how you show up and what you give is going to be the reason why you're successful, right? Mm -hmm. My clients that are the most successful are the ones that will take any opportunity that comes their way. They're not going to be like super picky about it. Of course, once, you know, we've worked with them for a year or two, we can get a little bit pickier, but they're the ones that are like, give it all to me. Let's go. Those are the ones that always do the best. And the people who are really, really clear about their mission and are, you know, standing in your personal power is always a continuous pursuit. But these are the people who are really believing in themselves. And as you said, doing that inner work and believe in their mission from a really place of integrity and are willing to go out there and give themselves up, like be vulnerable, be authentic, be themselves, because this is not a medium for you to put on your corporate face and give yourself like the generic uh, politically, whatever kind of the answer, mm-hmm. this is the place where you really get to be yourself. And so for the person who wants to be themselves and knows that the, that that being themselves is their magic, those are the interviews that do the best. 1000%. What are you seeing in the podcast space now? I mean, I feel like I've definitely been seeing a shift for solos performing a lot, but I mean, I see it a lot in even my own podcast. How do you see that or think about that when you are thinking about it for your business? I think that solos are definitely coming up more on the podcast side, but I don't think that the interview will ever go away because I think that podcasts are demanding in the consistency of content that we must create. Mm-hmm. And we need people to interview on our podcasts because we got to turn on episodes every week. You know what I'm saying? So I do see solos becoming much more popular, which I love. My sister and I are leading into them, but I also don't see the interview going away anytime soon. And the landscape is ever evolving in the sense that a lot of people who started in the pandemic have dropped off, but then other more highly produced shows are coming out. So our database that we've created is always kind of like in flux, right? Mm-hmm. So it's been cool to track like, okay, there, there's been a big wave in 2022 of podcasts that dropped off. And there's been new ones coming out that I feel like are really understanding of the medium and committed because they get what they've seen what it takes from people who've been starting the last couple of years. How do you advise people to not say the same stories on every podcast? Because I think that, and as a consumer of podcasts, I there's like a pet peeve that I have if I'm listening to someone that I love that's doing like three podcasts in two months and they said the same childhood story or they said the same thing. I'm kind of like annoyed by it. So I'm curious if you like, it's something that you guys think about when you're coaching or advising your clients. That's a really excellent point. I get annoyed about it too. And I, you know, it happens because your story is your story. And people are going to ask you similar questions, but also like, you know, it is part of the game, but as a guest, I'm always trying to come to the space. And I encourage my clients to come to the space with where you're at today. Like, sure, there are the bullet points or the outlines or the skeleton that make up your story that are involved in your book or in your industry or whatever, whatever. But like, for example, I've never told that story about the credit card thing, right? Like right. there's, you have a plethora of things. And when you're interviewing, I always recommend people to feel intuitively like, well, how are you feeling? What do you want to share today? What what can you pull with that main mission above? And to remember that it is a conversation. So it isn't like a cut and dry thing. You're going to repeat some things, but to keep it fresh, like be present with the person that the host that, that's interviewing you. And treat it like a living, breathing, fluid conversation. And don't be afraid to share different things here, share different things there, and to match the energy of the host. Love that. And where do you see the podcast space going? 
I mean, regrettably, it's going towards video, which is a bummer for me because <laughs> I got into this space and no one would see my face. And now I'm on every fucking reel and TikTok and I don't like that. But yeah, I see podcast and video merging together. I think that industry is going to do a lot more crossover and that podcasting is no longer going to just be an audio experience. There's going to be a video component to it should anyone want to also take that route when consuming a podcaster's content. And in terms of monetization, like, do you Hmm. see it changing at all? Yeah. So I'm pretty vocal about the fact that you should sort of podcast to monetize on ad space because ad space is quite small in the industry. It's not that much money. And podcast download numbers are the lowest compared to all other platforms, all other mediums. So 10,000, you know, I'd rather have 10,000 downloads an episode on my podcast than 10,000 Instagram followers. Much bigger of an impact there. I'd rather have 10,000 Instagram followers than 10,000 TikTok followers, right? Like there's a social currency that we have to talk about a little bit when we're talking about content platforms. So I believe the new move is for podcasts to be a lead generator or a community builder for an already existing business. I think thought leaders and CEOs and entrepreneurs and businesses are using podcasts to be an extension of the work that they do. And instead of chasing ad money or downloads, they're chasing lead generation and community building instead. I love that. And then I want to talk to you about what you just came out with. I feel like it's so cool that you're kind of just like lifting the veil and sharing your process and your relationships. Talk to me about the decision to do that and what people can expect. And what is yeah, it? So we launched the Podcast Tour Academy. We just finished our first class, our second opening in July. And essentially it's a six-week course where we show you exactly how to run a podcast tour. And so this is really a template that we've been able and framework that we've come to by pioneering what this strategy looks like and pioneering what a podcast tour, what makes a successful podcast tour and what doesn't. I believe that the podcast tour industry or the podcast tour strategy is so beautiful because anyone can pop in at any time. You don't necessarily need to be at a really large place to start getting interviews. And so that might mean that those people might not have the budget to do this with us running it. So I was talking to a lot of women on sales calls and 90% of the reason people don't sign with us is because of budget, not because they don't want to be a guest on podcasts. So I launched this academy where we step-by-step walk you through the strategy, the emotional step. We show you our pitch template that we've worked on, our proprietary pitch template. We really give all of our strategy away to you so that you can run it internally. And now in June, this will launch. We've created an internal database of podcasts that make it very easy and time efficient to create on-brand pitch lists for podcasts since there's 2 million and it's very difficult to figure out which one's right for you. So we are opening up this database to the public as a subscription site so people can build on-brand pitch lists for themselves. So smart. So incredibly on point. I will be joining a thousand percent for the database. So cool. I always ask all guests something that you feel like you've really unlearned and relearned in a resourceful way. I think I would probably say like my my relationship to money and scarcity. I find that I had to completely unlearn when I thought about money and my relationship to money. And I relearn it like every day in my business and have to reframe it. And I find myself often going back to a scarcity mindset. And it's just constant reminding myself of the new insights that I've had and utilizing it to build my business. What was, but what was the original belief that like you had to hold tight to it or what was it? That it runs out, like that there's not enough, that I can't charge 
a premium retainer, that I can't hold money, that I can't manage money, that it's something that you have to like strategically hit the nail on the head on for it to actually come in, that you have to save in a certain way, that you have to think about where you're like the way you're budgeting, the way you're investing, the way you're spending. Basically everything we've been taught, I just don't really, really buy into so much now. I'm much more of the camp that there that money is is definitely a energetic game, if anything, a belief system game and a strategic game, but much more of a belief and worthiness game and that your desires are meant to play out in this lifetime and that spending money can create those desires. And that money is a beautiful neutral resource for me to use to support women and myself and my business and my community and my family. And so just really rewiring what having money means and what building wealth means and getting onto that dense, very more 3D, restricted, fear-based approach that I think our society takes to money and looking at it as this really sacred, energetic relationship that supports me, that comes and goes and flows and all of those things. And then I can assign beautiful meaning to in the way that makes sense for my life. I love it. Is there anything else that you want to share with the active ingredient community? Where can people find you? Well, I'd just like to say that you are safe in your emotions. That's been my biggest, biggest belief that I have to rewire for Celine. You can find me on Instagram at Scout Sobel and my agency at Scouts Agency on Instagram. Amazing. I will link everything and I will also update everyone when the database is live. Thank you so much. This was amazing. And thank you for being so open. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor. Thank you so much for getting to the end of the episode. And more importantly, thank yourself for choosing to learn more about how to come home to yourself. As always, take what resonates with you and simply let go of what doesn't. I would really appreciate it if you can give the show five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen, because that's the way that the show will continue to grow. And we are all about growth here. I'm sending you so much love and I will see you next week.